Hey folks, Jeff Salzman here and welcome back to The Daily Evolver. Today, I am joined by Jeremy Johnson, who I have to say, I think, is one of the most exciting young integral thinkers and doers, philosophers out there working today. And I've known Jeremy virtually for several years, but we finally got to meet face-to-face in the last couple of days as he was in town actually till yesterday, heading up a conference at Naropa University here on Gene Gebser. And uh, that's his sort of passion in the bigger integral landscape. And um, Jeremy, just in way, by way of quick background, has a degree in sociology from Fordham, which is the Jesuit University in Manhattan, and an MA in consciousness studies from Goddard College. And we'll talk more about what he's up to later. But first, join me in welcoming Jeremy Johnson. Hey, Jeremy. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. So, yeah, so you just got back from the conference, and we want to talk about Gene Gebser, you know, in context of integral theory. He's, by all accounts, one of the founders of integral philosophy and really a key player in the development. Uh, Was a 20th century, I think, born in 1905, died in 76. and 73, yeah. 73, okay. And you have, uh, well, just give us a little background of your way in and how you see him being situated, and maybe even a bit about the conference. Sure, sure. Well, okay, so first of all, if you hear a cat, I'm in a room with my my dear little cat who just took a long ride with me to Orlando, so she's a little needy right now. Uh, but hopefully, what's, her, what's her name? Hopefully. Sophie. Sophie, she's you are a, welcome to the podcast to Sophie. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> that being said, uh, so for, for me, uh, I discovered Gebser really d- directly about 10 years ago, 10 or 11 years ago. And I was telling you um, when we were having lunch about how um, I was on the train ride into Manhattan reading Ever-Present Origin for the first time. And, and the, really the first few pages, something clicked. Something clicked about the way he was describing the integral um, and how it related to time. And what he describes, and we'll get into this, the concretion of time. So, um, I was reading Ken Wilber at the time. I was reading Teilhard de Chardin and, and a lot of these consciousness studies oriented thinkers about planetary culture and the evolution of consciousness. And Gebser was next on my list to, to deep dive in. And I can't really explain how I got from reading that book to now suddenly helping to run the Gebser Society. But I, I ended up just getting very involved in the in the academic society and the conferences and the organizing. And, and now I, keep- I, I, I could point out your president for the second year of the Gene Gebser Society. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so the ball. Thank you. We appreciate yeah. it. Of course. Yeah. And, and so, so I think um, the, 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 the download for me is his approach and it's so phenomenological. He takes so much time and attention and this can be a little difficult to get into him for this reason. But on the other, the other hand, um, He's he's going to immerse you in particular works of art and really kind of allow you to connect with that. And he uses a work of art, a piece of literature, um, and then he kind of goes into scientific theories as well. But whatever he's working with, he really wants you to experience it and encounter it and sort of download it and get what's going on in consciousness with that particular cultural expression. Right. So Mm -hmm. so he really kind of opens up 
uh, the study of consciousness and the structures of consciousness uh, for me. And that's why yeah. I like, I like sharing and talking about him because it can be very engaging actually. And, and yeah. uh, well, just to put, put him in some context for the people who mm-hmm. are listening from a sort of a Wilberian view and Ken Wilbur is a, you know, huge proponent of Gebser and stands on his shoulders. Uh, Gebser is the guy who came up with these uh, structures of consciousness that we often refer to as archaic, magic, mythic, and mental, uh, and then integral he, he, he is, is the next one. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, a little disagreement here and there, babe, maybe, but just these, that these structures of consciousness are world spaces of, in and of themselves. Mm-hmm. that operate right. on their own logic and, uh, you know, chemistry and, and whatever, physics. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so, so for Gebser, um, maybe I can give a little bit of background. So like you mentioned, he was born in 1905 and he passed away in 1973. So really the counterculture was sort of still taking off. And in the seventies, we got to see a lot of that sort of hit the West and, and sort of North America with Esalen and, CIS and and then Wilbur himself in the late 70s. So he was right before that, I think that wave that was really sort of taking on his his insights. Um, but even during towards the end of his life, he started to to really kind of reach young people, which I think is interesting. But um, he started off as a poet. He started off as uh, following in the footsteps of Rilke. And if you've read Rilke, you know, his poetry has a sort of presencing power. You know, there's a kind of a um, a, a spirituality, a transparency to Rilke's work where you really feel deeply kind of already connected to it, right? Um, Gebser felt the same way, and he thought that through poetry and through these kind of artistic movements in the early 20th century, especially poetry in the German language where he was situated, was mutating. There, there was something going on in culture. It was a new way of looking at the world and perceiving and experiencing the world. So it was sort of just an intuitive hunch for him in his in his younger years. And what he did is he kind of went on a sojourn through Europe following the footsteps of Rilke and, and maybe a little bit more context. He was living between World War I and World War II. Uh, there was a lot going on in Europe. There was a lot of crisis. There was a lot of breakdown of the old structures. There was uh, the rise of fascism. So So I think palpably for Gebster, he felt that something was going on in the world, in consciousness, to, to oh be having God. these sorts I mean, of outbreaks. To have that kind of mind and to be in the middle of that is just astonishing. Yeah. I mean, and, and, and you, you, you taught me a lot about Gebster in the last couple of days. Uh, what, one of the things that was interesting regarding this is that he was actually an Austrian. He was born Hans mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. moved to Paris and became Jean. And yes. that was, you know, a, a, move, a move away from the Nazi thing. Exactly, exactly. He actually had moved to, to Spain for a while following uh, Rilke's footsteps because Rilke spent some time in Spain. Uh, but Gebser was very good with people. He was very good with languages and he took to Spain naturally. He made a lot of friends and connections in the government, uh, a lot of cultural projects, a lot of translation projects. And um, it was in Spain in the early 1930s, I think 32, 33, the winter, where he had this kind of um, what we would call like a a peak experience or a mystical experience. And he described it as a lightning-like flash of inspiration. Mm. And this was, for him, this was the insight of the integral. 
And he would need to unpack that over the next 20 years or so of his life. And so he started writing about Rilke. He started kind of sensing like there's some kind of shift in consciousness going on here. He originally called it the aperspectival. And um, a few works he wrote Rilke in Spain and then kind of moved on from Spain when fascism started to pop up there. Um, he was friends with the likes of, um, let's see, uh, Lorca, the poet Lorca. They were, they were good buddies. Unfortunately, Lorca didn't make it out of Spain. He was actually killed at the border. And Gebser nearly didn't make it out of Spain either. He was stopped by, by the fascists at the border too. But because he was so well connected, he found a way, he found a way through. Um, so then he was in Paris and then he changed his name to Jean at that point because he's like, okay, I really want to distance myself from what's going on in, in, my, in my home country. Um, and he hung out with the intelligentsia. No matter where he went, he was always kind of mingling with the, the poets and the artists. He befriended Picasso. He befriended scientists. He knew Sartre. So he, he, he knew the kind of the life intellectual pulse of, of the mid-20th, early wow. 20th century. Yeah. Um, and then he also shortly escaped uh, Paris and France right before the border closed as well. And he escaped to Switzerland where, where he lived for the rest of his life. Um, like Jung, actually, you know, Jung kind of escaped there. And so did Rudolf uh, Steiner after uh, World War One. So, so he made his way there and, I, and it was there where he began this really deep sort of contemplative work, studying what he saw as an eruption of consciousness in Europe. But that for him sort of awaken this, this transparency, like, okay, if this has happened, if this is happening now, then surely this has happened before. And there we go with the structures. He began to look, okay, let's look at the previous leaps or mutations. Um, and so for Gebster, they're really, he, he uses this word concrete, but they're very concrete in the sense that uh, he's really looking to describe them in an ontological, ontological and phenomenological way. So how does a person in this world space, in this structure, relate to time and space? What is the embodied experience of that? So as we know, the archaic magic, mythic, and mental uh, was, was the descriptions that he used. And maybe we can kind of go into that a little bit too, to yeah. sort of play with those time, time <coughs> spaces. Yeah, walk us up. Yeah. So, so okay. The beginning is the archaic, right? And as you'll notice, uh, there is an unfolding dimensionality to these. It's uh, the archaic is, is, he describes it as zero. So everything in consciousness that would unfold is there, it's present, but it's latent. So it's a kind of a dormancy or a, or a dreamless sleep, right? And even in ever-present origin, he uses the, uh, a Taoist quote, dreamlessly, the men of old slept. So it's this this concept that, Every, everything is latent, and uh, Feuerstein describes it as a maximum latency and minimum transparency. So there's this idea that it's like a little seed pot, right? And then with the magic, um, there's this springing forth, there's this leap. And for me, this, this historically, if we're going to place it anywhere, this is, this is the eruption of, of human imagination, of, of art, of culture. And that's not necessarily... Uh, stopping at, at Homo sapiens, that can go way further back. So we're we're talking about a very ancient structure, and so the magical for Gebser is this one point, one dimension, and the one dimension is this interweaving. And he says pars pro toto, right? So one point is all other points. It's a kind of a vitalist interweaving of the human being in in nature, right? In the energies of and the life forces and the animals and so on. So there's a kind of an embeddedness and suffusion with nature. But interestingly, this isn't 
I know Wilbur in in the eighties used a uh, Ouroboric image, right? So the archaic Ouroboric. It's a little different for Gepser or um, because in the magic, there's now a kind of a, a, an interplay with nature. We're no longer totally identified with it in the dormant archaic. Now we're using spells. We're mm-hmm. interacting to survive. Yeah. We're, we we're working with it nature. as something other than ourselves. So yeah. Gepser says, importantly, uh, humanity no longer is the world. We have the world. We have a world, right? Yeah. So there's this, there's this uh, beginning to be this split. Yeah. And so the self is waking up, but the self isn't individuated. It's very kind of a collective group. Uh, and, and what I love in Everpresent Origin, he uses the image, and this is where his style comes in, right? Because many people are familiar with the, the structures, but, but Gepser really gives you direct, concrete expressions of it. So he uses the image of the Venus of Brassenpoi, and it's this little, this little visage, uh, a little face with big eyes and a little bit of hair, and it's just this tiny little piece of stone that somebody carved um, in, in, I think, the Paleolithic. And inter- interestingly, it doesn't have a mouth. And so Gebser goes for a couple of pages sort of describing this uh, mouthless motif in the magic. And he says, you know, the magic is, is all about um, listening to, to nature. It's an acoustic structure, right? So there's a, there is a reverberation of the body and the nervous system, the sounds and chattering of, of different animals and, and different, the different language of animals, right? So there's a listening to, and there's being in this acoustic space. And if you think about it, acoustics are very kind of that magical structure. You're very interconnected, you know, um, if you're in, if you're in a closed chamber in a, in an auditorium, in a theater, you can have this sort of experience. And of course, in, the Paleolithic cave, right, of Lasso or Chauvet, where these kind of ancient Paleolithic rituals took place in the firelight. You can imagine that kind of acoustic chamber. So, so it's a very kind of, yeah. okay, you know, you kind of get this download a little bit, right? You yeah. start to feel it, it, the structure. You, you, you want to imagine it. You want to feel it. That's yeah. part of the integral project is to realize that that, even though it's been repressed and suppressed by other worldviews that have come online, mm-hmm. um, it, it as if, if, in the integral stage, we actually want to reaccess this or and and have it be real for us. So to so I love that and 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 it has to be poetic. It has to be something that's not just mental, uh, mm-hmm. so that we can actually feel it. And the acoustic is so, so it's very delicious. I appreciate it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, McLuhan, um, another guy. I don't know if folks are familiar with Marshall McLuhan or have studied his work. They probably know the medium is the message or the medium is the massage, but he talks about the similar thing about pre-literate cultures being very acoustic. It's all about body posture, um, you know, movement, dynamics, dramatur- uh, being a dramatic expression of your story, right? And so, and so, you know, acoustics become really important in the, in the unperspective or world. The mind stuff isn't there in the same no way. no it's yeah. it, the head is the head is down here in the gut and he actually <laughs> talks about that too right yeah. so it's it's they're they're in you know um we can kind of go into that too a little bit just the intuitive capacity of the magical as the group to to sense into the the we space of the tribe there's a kind of a collective ego of the tribe right yeah. um, it hasn't really centered and interiorized in an individual ego quite yet so right. there's a participation um but like i said it's not a total identification so that that's really the magical right. one other aspect of it would probably be uh timelessness there, there's a kind of a dreamy timelessness of the magical a kind of a dreaming that doesn't you don't really feel the passage of time in the same way it has a different quality to it um 
so yeah, the, the, those are the two takeaways from the magic. The, the point-like dimensionality where one point is all other points, you know, one point in the nexus of life and, and the vitalistic, emotional, psychistic world space is all other points. So there's an interconnectivity and then timelessness, the dimension, it's, it's one dimension, right? Mm-hmm. But even here, like I mentioned, you know, there's this, there's this kind of, we have a world now we're, we're using these spells. We're interacting with the world for the good of the tribe. We are erupting in creativity. We're painting mammoths in caves, right? So there's this explosion of, of art and creativity and tool making in human beings, right? So that begins to sort of drift us into uh, what we would call the mythic. And you want me to just jump right into that? Oh, yes, but I just want to pause for a moment and just feel into that magic. You know, it was a great transmission. I got it. And I want to have that in my life. Yes, yes. All right. Now we can go to the mythic. Completely. And I would recommend, actually, for folks who want to download this further, um, there's a beautiful documentary on Netflix called The Cave of Forgotten Dreams by Werner Her- um, Herzog. And yeah. if you've seen it, you know what I mean. I it's, that's, that's, the, that's the download. You just turn off the lights and listen to it with a good pair of headphones or good audio. Um, and you can get that kind of that power. Um, I think there was an anthropologist in, in that documentary, you know, very secular, very, very scientific. And yet going down into that cave for him, he started to have these really powerful dreams of these Paleolithic lions, right? Mm-hmm. And these saber-toothed tigers yeah. to sort of uh, transmitting some kind of spiritual power to him in, in dreams. So you can imagine that that's, that's a feature as well. Right. The image, the imagination is so yeah. powerful. Yeah. Um, well, the, the, but, if I could just interject, it's one of the big realizations that I got from you the other night when we were talking is this idea of timelessness in uh, Gebser's work, that all of these structures are online right now and past, present, and future are all online right now. And that was in in a way new to me and I'll explain because I think other people who are spiritual practitioners will maybe have some of the same realization is that, you know, as somebody who's studied and practiced Buddhism for a long, long time. I, 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 have, I have this understanding of absolute reality and relative reality. So the world of form and time and space, and in the world of just awareness within which it arises that has no form, you know, just, and that's just put real simply, and we can feel into those things, this world of form and the world of emptiness. What Gebser's bring into the party for me is that even in the world of form, which I always just saw as time bound, that all of time is also being in, is also interpenetrated in every present moment. And I got that in a new way from you, uh, okay. you know, uh, from Gebser via you maybe uh, the other night. And so I just wanted to put that on the table that it has a, it has a way of liberating the world of form without mm-hmm. being something other than the world of form. Exactly. Exactly. So, and, and that's, we're going to get into that too a little bit as we get into the integral, the perspectival, it's diaphanous Gebser describes. And actually in the first, the very first page, and this is what I mean when I was reading him in the very first page, I knew he was talking about something weird and different and interesting. Um, he says, you know, uh, and as the origin before all time is the entirety of the very beginning, so too is the present, the entirety of everything temporal and time bound including the effectual reality of all time phases, yesterday, today, 
tomorrow and even the pretemporal and timelessness. So he's, he's, he's wrapping it all up. He's saying the, the time and the timeless are, are one with each other or, yeah. or, or there's a trans, there's a, there's a, there's a wholeness to this yeah. and, and that wholeness can be palpable. And that's, yeah. that's exactly what he's transmitting. And that's really his 1933 insight his winter of 1933 insight was that, um, that flash, that sudden insight that, Oh my gosh, all of time is this whole. And, and he had, he had to just really work at this monumental work, ever present origin to kind of laboriously figure out what that really meant and study yeah. the different structures and, and sort of unpack <clears throat> realization. And when we hear some of these, uh, you know, uh, sort of leading edge physicists talk about, physics and and the nature of of past present and future and time in these sort of exterior dimensions it's the same thing it's like it's all one thing i mean i don't understand it but it it sounds like gebser yes well gebser was friends with many of the physicists who popularized this right many of the quantum physicists of the mid 20th century in europe he was hanging out with those guys and he was telling him about his his insights and they were going well that sounds a lot like what we're saying about quantum reality you know okay so 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 gebser i I know i'm mentioning the art is his primary right uh but he he really wanted to corroborate between the arts and the sciences which is also kind of that integral impulse right to bring those two together and sort of to see um and as we're going to get into the mental and the perspectival age um you see both the arts and the scientists start, start to articulate this new worldview, this new ontological reality, right? It's a new world space we're breaking into. And very often it's usually the artists who do it first, but at the same time, you know, the scientists come online too. And, and science doesn't just have to be mental or perspectival. It's, it, it could be this other really fun integral science. But um, so I guess we should go to the mythical. Yeah. Um, so and, we, and also we laid probably, down the archaic and the magic, and now we're moving to the mythic, mythical. Yes. And, and I should also mention that these, these structures, uh, the way they unfold, right? There's an unfoldment, as I'm saying, about dimensionality from zero to one. The mythical is going to be two-dimensional. Um, they, he describes them as mutations. And by, by that, he means they are discontinuous leaps. And on one hand, one hand they are um, sequential going from zero to one to two. But on the other hand, the two-dimensional world that we're about to go into is, is its own reality too. So it, there's a discontinuity and non-linearity to it as much as there is an unfoldment and immersion. So he's kind of asking you to hold both in, in your mind, you know? Um, and that for him is the whole idea behind the aperspectival or, or the temporal dimension. Time transcends or time removes the, the problem of either transcending um, or going going above, below, beneath. Those are all spatial descriptions. Time is this, it's something else. And, and that's, we're going to get into that. We're going to lean into that. Yeah, but the mythical. Very, very good. Yes, all of these mythical. structures leap from leap from that origin that we're describing. The ever-present origin. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's a little and bit it, like up from Eden for me. It's like the title yeah. itself is 52% of the realization. You know, <laughs> yeah, the yeah. ever-present yeah. origin. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So origin is, is ever present, and these structures are, are creative world, creative ontological world spaces that spring forth out of latency, and, and they're all present. And, and so even, in, even, even as we're describing the archaic and the magic and the mythic, the mental is, is latent. The integral is latent. You know? And then as you move on, those older structures, 
they don't necessarily neatly fold or transcend and include for Gepser, but they're still there. They, they, they're, they're still there because you require that sort of from the mythical into the, into the mental, for instance. But okay, all that being said, we move into the, to the mythical. And so for me, like Gepser is writing this, you know, mid 20th century, a lot of his data is, is, is probably, it probably needs a little bit of updating, not necessarily his work and his exegesis on particular works of art, but we can actually kind of push back the mythical way, way, way back to probably the middle paleolithic, you know, um, because a lot of pre-civilizational structures like Gobekli Tepe, for instance, or um, let's see, lower Neolithic like Stonehenge, those are all astrological things. And so for the mythical, the dimension of time begins to open up and sort of intensify a little bit further. It's time as, as, as season, as cycle of diurnal. So, you know, night and day, summer, summer and winter, um, the seen and the unseen, right? The visible and the un- invisible world, the world of the spirits. Uh, the realm of the soul opens up for Gepser in the, in the mythical. And the time is this ryth- rhythmicity, the kind of rhythmicity of the circadian rhythm, um, like I'm saying, of the seasons, of the stars, and, and the movement of the stars, which have that pattern every year. So there's this intensification of consciousness, this realization of time and the soul that emerges now in, in the mythical. The soul is no longer dormant like, like it sort of was in the magical, we might argue. Um, so, so with the mythical, uh, probably the best, another great example for this one, I was describing to you um, the prince in Crete, in Gnosis Crete, it's a wall fresco in, in this ancient structure from, I think, probably 2,500 years ago. Um, don't have the exact numbers on, on me offhand, but um, it's a fresco, so it's a motif. And, and what Gebser is great at, he's, he always points out that you should always look at the motifs of, of a culture. Don't take them for granted. You, you know, the garnishing actually has something to say, you know, in, in terms of what what consciousness is doing. And so in this image of this prince who, I'll describe the image for for listeners. Um, It's this prince who's, um, he's wearing a crown of feathers. He's standing and his his up to his um, waist, he's standing in these flowers and this vegetation. Above his waist, he's standing with the backdrop of the stars behind him. His eyes are sort of pointed up. It's a very kind of an elegant look. And Gebster says, well, right here, you actually see this mutation taking place this jump from the magical to the mythical because as we mentioned the magical is this vitalistic interweaving of all things and the prince is sort of standing in that but he's emerging out of that into the sky and of course the sky in this image is full of stars so he's emerging into his own soul um and a couple of little nuances here that Gebser adds to this image the prince's feathers the feathers and the birds are very often signs or, or images of soul in a lot of different cultures in, in Egyptian culture for instance, as well, the, the I believe, uh, I don't know if it's the Ka or the Ba, but the soul is, an, is, is in, in, expressed in the symbol of a bird. Uh, so, so he's wearing adorned a crown of feathers. Uh, the flowers around him, even in, the, even in nature, even in that magical structure, they're blooming. So he's, Gebser mentions that we've already, we've already fully concretized the magic. It's been fully expressed. And so we have these blooming flowers and we have this prince who's standing and the emergence of the soul is encapsulated in a single image from the mythical to the, ma- from the magical to the mythical. Um, and of course you see this motif in, in many different classical and ancient civilizations, the diurnal quality of the underworld uh, and Olympus, right? Hades and Olympus, 
um, the sky world and indigenous cultures and sort of the underworld. And then sometimes there's a middle world, but there's this kind of mandalic image of the cosmos as sort of a, a cyclical rhythmic, rhythmic sort of um, spinning you know, of archetypes um, and an, an eternal recurrence. So, so the gods are always at play, but, and, and what happens in a particular year may be different, but the archetype, the sort of the, the theme, the quality of time it is in accordance to these celestial um, dimensions. And you can see this in sort of all ancient civilizations, like the, the Egyptian pyramids, the Aztecs, the Maya, they had this fantastic knowledge of the stars. And so for Gepser, this is a knowledge of the soul kind of coming online. Mm -hmm. And the self is beginning to coalesce because with the soul, you know, we start to see the self. So he describes like the myth of narcissist, right? It's the guy who's, who stares at the pond. He stares at himself. Water is another symbol of the soul, right? So he's kind of falling into his own, his own interiority, you know? So it's a kind of an expression of that. And then a lot of the myths, of course, in, in ancient Greece are stories of these heroes who are going off in, into the sea to conquer serpents mm -hmm. and monsters and beasts. So there's this kind of interactivity with the ocean, the oceanic qualities of the soul as well. And um, mm -hmm. so that's, you can go on actually about the mythic because there's just so much and we have well, so much to think about it. Yeah, when I think about, you know, how would I access that now? Or what, what mm -hmm. does that have for me now? That last mm -hmm. part really gets me as the hero's thing, that, that, that I'm on a hero's journey. That mm -hmm. That's it. Every, I mean, everything that's, if, that happens to me is happened, happening to me for a reason. That every person I talk to has something to tell me. That you know, it's not about getting it right as much as it is about just turning and facing what's you know in front of you. Yep. And that kind of thing is, mm -hmm. you know, pretty inspiring. And there's plenty of work about the soul too, like Jung and. Uh, you know, if reading, if you're if you're drawn to Jung's work, Carl Jung, if you're drawn to James Hillman's work, any kind of work about the archetypes, the soul, the psyche, the the play of the different right. personas in our own psyche as they act out in our lives, right. like that's that's the mythic. Right, that's the mythic. And, and Jeff is saying that is its own world space. It's got its own mm -hmm. physics, and it's got its own thing, and it's 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 a palpable reality. You know, yes. And, and so, you know, if you just, all you have to do is look at most of the ancient cultures and kind of get a sense of, of their understanding of wisdom and their religiosity and their, their cosmology. You know, this comes down to cosmology in many cases of, of the sort of as, passing of the astrological season and what each season means in this sort of beautiful archetypal cosmic drama, you know, right. and, and in that drama is not only looking out at the stars, but also realizing in the sort of as above, so below another, another polarity of the mythical is the cosmos as, as this macrocosmic play. And then the microcosmic play as above, so below. So the individual is a mirror for this whole thing going on in reality. Um, and, and so, you know, myth and ritual recapitulates that in the individual's life. And yeah, so that, that's like, that's now the you're, now drop you're, of the, of the myth. Now you're scaring me. <laughs> no, no, it's great. It, it, it's big. It's, I know I'm a microcosm yeah. about the cosmos, but oh my God. Um, <laughs> all right, so that's cool. The so, power of the sun, right? Yeah, that's, no, it's, it's totally, coming online. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, it, it's, 
it's like I was talking about in a previous um, podcast. I often think of uranium and how much explosive power it has. And it's just a little disc of metal. Uh-huh. <clears throat> and, you know, just how much power there is in all of these things that we encounter in our psyche, if we really, you know, want to metabolize them. And Absolutely. You know, that's so, so good. All right. So archaic, magic, mythical. Now up. Now we go all mental. Right. Yeah. Well, so. Again, um, a good transitional image. And, and again, because Gepser was writing in the mid-century, he didn't have access to a lot of other world cultures. So he was basing a lot of his research on Europe and the Mediterranean, you know, as a mid-century writer in Europe was doing, you know. But um, so he uses a lot of Greek meta, uh, examples, and I'll keep using them as well just to give his examples. But we can find other examples in other cultures. Um, but for the mythic into the mental and the sort of the late mythic period, you already mentioned the hero's journey. Um, now the hero is the emergence of the ego, right? And so I think precipitating the mental, we have, we have this, this coalescing of the, the, the ego, the waking mind that's in, um, uh, what would you call it, you know, who lives and dies, right? Who, who is mortal, um, who never, who has a relation to soul, but is still aware that they are a mortal being, right? And so you have this sort of rise in a lot of ancient cultures, let's say the, the myth of Gilgamesh and Enkidu, right? So they go off to fight the gods and goddesses, especially the old nature goddesses, uh, which is a kind of a attacking of the magical, right? They go off to fight them and then find the elixir of immortality. And they don't, they don't get it. So, so what comes in the precipitating the mental is a sort of tragic agony of, of, of living and dying, sort of the suffering of, of, being, of being in time, right? And you see this as well in sort of the axial age religions, a sort of awareness of suffering, right? The great golden rule. Um, and the Buddha, is a, the first noble truth is, is that there is suffering, right? So there's this awareness of the self in space, in, in time, linear time as a being that will fade away. Um, and and that, that's kind of difficult. It's an, it's an enduring thing. It's something we have to bear as mortal beings. And so that's a very heavy thing that starts to come online, that awareness, that consciousness. Um, but also probably the best image for the mental is the myth of Athena breaking from the head, the forehead of Zeus. So that's how the goddess Athena is born. And she comes out fully armored. With, with, I think, a, a sword and, and the armor and the shield, and, and she's ready to go. She's ready to fight, and that's very mental. And mental, the word, and Gebser, this is another thing Gebser's great at, um, he loves language. So he will pick apart a language, a word for you, and help you realize how potent it is with the structures. And you can actually follow a word and trace it back to its etymological roots and get to the kind of the magical and archaic structures of that word. So anyway, he's, he uses the word mental, and he and he traces it to mens or menace, M-E-N-I-S, and that means wrath. So think of the paintings of, of, of Zeus or even the Old Testament God, right, with the furrowed brow, with the eyes that are looking forward on the battlefield, right? So there's a kind of a conquest. The heroes are going forth to conquer these, these forces of the soul for the ego. Um, in the birth of Athena, it's an unnatural birth, right? It's, it's coming through the head of a male god. And it's also a kind of a wounding, so she breaks forth. And Athena, if you if you remember the the, the Greek details here, she can see at night. She has owl eyes. So there is this uh, idea that with the mental coming online, there's now this uh, an awareness of 
of the dark. There, there's a distancing and differentiation from the realm of the soul, the nighttime, the celestial realms, uh, the, the realm of the unconscious. There's the daylight mind. There's the waking mind that is awake at night. And so Athena is the owl-eyed deity. And then, of course, with her as well comes Athens, where the Greeks began philosophy, right? And McLuhan describes um, this age as well as the shift from the oral cultures to the alphabetic cultures, the, the splitting apart of language into an alphabet and reading it on a page and just having written literature. Uh, Socrates described this himself as this kind of loss of this sort of acoustic embodied memory um, into paper memory. But with that gain, there's a loss, right? Or with that loss, there's a gain. So the mental comes online for, for Gebser sort of in this Greek period, and it begins to sort of show itself in, in the subsequent civilizations. But as we should probably describe, the mutations aren't always very neat. And just because there's an early realization, an early mutation, early creative expression of the mental or any structure doesn't mean, doesn't guarantee it's going to take hold. So we have the dark ages in Europe, of course. And so we have this sort of retreating of the mental and retreating of that until we get later to the, to the Renaissance. But maybe I should stop here. So one more thing, actually. Um, so Greek reasoning, uh, Gebser describes this and, and other philosophers describe this as it's, it's cyclical reasoning. Um, Gebser describes it as oceanic thinking. And it's sort of um, the archetypal round. You know, you're always on this hero's journey. Your life fits into these archetypes as you're moving through it. And, and you're sort of always conforming to the to this rhythmicity. But in that, in the mental, time begins to break forward into linear time, just like Athena, who's springing forth, just like Menace, the, the kind of gazing forward on the battlefield on the spatial plane. There's this movement into space. There's this movement into three dimensional space and there's movement into directed time. So the hunter or the archer who's kind of looking at the object of their their desire or 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 wrath. Um, so there's this directionality which pierces the membrane of the mythical and moves us into linear time and, and, and into history. And a lot of 20th century philosophers talk about this sort of shift in the way we talk about history from cycles into novelty. And so this is where the mental comes in and the mental has pyramidic thinking and that's sort of the dialectical thinking, right? Um, with the dialectic, you have sort of the, the thesis, the antithesis and the synthesis. Um, for Gebser, he described it as pyramidic because he really wanted to get that image of the triangle, um, which he's going to use as we get into the Renaissance period. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so, so here, you know, as we're beginning to feel more modern now. We're beginning to feel like, okay, these guys are worried about living and dying, um, you know, kings and their wars, you know, Iliad, you know, the Iliad is, is um, kind of about the sort of wrathful, like, going forward, right? There's a wrathful quality to it. I think it's, it actually begins with the line, um, sing me muse, the wrath of Achilles, right? Um, and then, of course, in, in, uh, in India, we have the Bhagavad Gita, which is another kind of go forth and do your duty. So again, directionality kind of breaks forward, mental and the head begin to become really important. So we move from like the, the gut and the heart, the soul is, is the heart, into the head, into the, the, the furrowed brow, into, right. you know, mm -hmm. and, and faces begin to have more, you know, more mouths in, in the mythic into the mental as well. So you see this as a visage that starts to appear in ancient Greece as well. And we start to see in, in ancient Rome, uh, the emergence of portraits of everyday people, no longer just gods or kings, but everyday people. And this is, this is radically different. This is radically new. So there's this 
coalescing of the awareness, not of the, not of the, the archetype of the ego as a God, but as individual person, as, as anybody on the street, you know, uh, a person who gets there, you know, I think in uh, Hellenistic Egypt, they would have these little frescoes of the, per- of the dead, you know, like, this is who this person was. So there's this emerging individuation process that's also kind of happening as we move into the mental and we move into linear time and history. And, and this idea that time is not cyclical, it, there, it, it's novel. There's, there's directionality to things. And in Christianity, we get the same thing. It's, it's no longer this cosmic cycle. It's the, the, the eschatology at the end of history. Christ is going to return and then history is going to end. So direction. Right. Um, it's great stuff and, and well said. Um, Gebser was not, uh, did not see it as evolutionary, though, correct? No, no, because with the arising, and, and this, is, this comes online mostly in the, the Renaissance period, with the kind of resurgence of the mental in this kind of period where, mm-hmm. you know, we have unperspectable art in the medieval cathedral, right? The sort of flat two-dimensional art we have a kind of um, reversion back into that or a, um, a reification of the mythical structure in, in, in Christianity. Um, at the same time, it ha- does have these mental qualities about eschatology. So again, they're kind of Janus faced. They're kind of showing a little bit of both, but yeah, we pull back a little bit in the medieval period and um, it's through, uh, well, I should probably give the, the next example then. So Gebser describes each structure having an efficient and a deficient mode. Meaning the efficient is sort of what I'm talking about. Like there's this flowering of culture and new art and, and a sort of a new way of living that, that there's a lot of creative effervescence, effervescence and, and, and frenzy and it works. It sort of expands the whole, into a whole culture. Um, when it becomes deficient, it usually just means it's sort of fully crystallized whatever consciousness is doing in that structure, fully kind of flowered the mythical, fully flowered the mental and there's really nothing more for it to do. And, and so consciousness begins to sort of work on another dimension, another, another dimensionality, another unfoldment. And usually there's a kind of a crisis because the older structure doesn't, can't respond well. It's too rigidified. It's not able to adapt to these new challenges that it perhaps has wrought about you know, itself or the world has brought about as well. Either way, um, there's a kind of a, a stasis or a frozenness or um, a rigidity in the structures. but um, the reason why it's not necessarily linear, I mean, we have an unfoldment. So there's a quality of linearity to it in, in that sense, from one dimension up to the third dimension so far, and to, from, from zero to three-dimensional space, we're talking about an we unfoldment always, of dimension. We could also see the unfoldment in terms of history. Yeah, and, and the coalescence. I mean, using time, using linear time. Mm-hmm. So, and I think this is important for us, like, we live in linear time. We're, we're mental beings. That is our age, the mental structure. Um, but we're kind of moving out of that period. So our natural way of thinking about this is to think of history, to think of progress, to think of development. And those are all qualities and aspects that we can see of this process. But I think Gebser, he's kind of going, but there's more. <laughs> um, and so also with, with the mental, though, with this emergence of the ego, that's the waking mind, right? The, the mind that the mind that is aware that I have a self and this self is going to die and the self moves through time, linear time gets older. Um, 
that reality begins to take hold. But as that begins to take hold, the other realities of, of the soul, of the magical interweaving begin to fade away. We, we, lose, we lose the kind of spiritual potency that suffuses the mythic and the magical. It, it, we cut ourselves off from it. And, and right. even the, in the myths themselves about Athena, you know, that's a wounding. There's, there's a rupture. Um, Gebser has this wonderful line about the Renaissance period of Copernicus, right? Um, discovering uh, the heliocentric theory. And, and we have these like, just one thing after another, you know, scientists who are dis discovering anatomy and, and, and rupturing the theory of the humors, um, astronomers sort of rupturing the, the, the world as cave, right? The, the domed sky that we used to believe was like, okay, it's actually a, an, a dome, right? Yeah. Uh, the closed membrane of the mythical cosmology, that rhythmicity, right? Those cycles, that mandala, that two-dimensional mandala, the movement of seasons and time and archetype, we break out of it, yeah. we rip it open. We, we, we burst forth like a membrane, and, and but we lose that. And so that's, that's the interesting thing for Gepser is that there's a lot of loss as the structures unfold. Well, let's just pause for a minute and, yeah. and just contemplate what it would be like to imagine that the sky is a giant dome and that the stars are holes that are allowing the light of God or eternity or whatever uh -huh. to shine through. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. The, I mean, to there, a, see the world that way, we would. How how would we feel? You right. know, we would feel and so as good. moderns. As moderns, we're kind of like, oh, that's so silly, you know. Um, well, it but is. Like, no, just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but like, you know, it would go further back, right, and go to to um, you know an ancient Egyptian astronomer who's who's plotted this entire city, you know, to work with the movement of the stars and the gods. He, he is full of power and presence. The imaginal world is alive in him and speaking to him. Yes. And that's what Gebser is saying. He's just Gebser's expressing saying, it. Yeah. I mean, he's expressing he's it. it. He is it. it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. So no, we, we, we as moderns are, are, are remote from that experience. And I think Gebser, mm -hmm. it, by saying that, okay, let's not think about, let's not fixate on progress too much because he wants to actually, and this is what where the integral comes online later, respect these world spaces as 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 holes, as domains in themselves, right? The, the, the imaginal cannot be reduced into the waking mental. The waking mental doesn't do well with the imaginal stuff. It's, no, that's not real. So the, the mental's own wakeful clarity makes the magical and the mythical recede into occlusion, yes. into latency, it, it right? Does. Yes. And which brings us to the next the integral, right? thing, which is moving into the integral. Mm -hmm. Now, typically so, we talk about moving from, you know, essentially what you're talking about, the rational, modern yeah. worldview into postmodern uh, as its own worldview, then integral. But for Gebser, it's just, he's just going for it right out of um, well, the rational stage, right? Or rational. So he does have... He does have a, okay, so the mental structure, like I mentioned, there's always a deficient side of each structure. So with the mental structure, the deficient side is mental ratio. Um, and so- Mental what? Mental ratio. So like rational, mental rational, uh, uh, mental ratio. Um, so for Gebser, okay, so here's the, we should start with Petrarch and then move right into the modern age because it sort of starts there. Um, here we have, and it's a kind of a, a redo of the mental again, but in a different way. Um, here we have 
Petrarch, who was a famous humanist. He was a late medieval, early Renaissance period humanist, very famous for his, his letters and his poetry. Um, and I think some of his artwork as well. Um, but he's going on the sojourn with his brother in France and out of the blue, he decides to climb a mountain, Mount Ventoux. And he's going on this long hike. You know, I just did this in Boulder with, with, with Steve, Steve McIntosh. So, so I was thinking about that as we we're doing this um, because for Gebser, this is really important. He's climbing this mountain. He meets like a shepherd and the shepherd's like, who climbs a mountain? Uh, there's a sense that you don't do that in the medieval period. There's not an awareness of for, Certainly not for fun. No, no. <laughs> Maybe if you're a mountain man, you know, with your yeah. goats or something, yeah. but, or, or, you know, Moses climbing, you know, to, to talk to God. But yeah, or if somebody's behind you with a whip. Well, that too. <laughs> <laughs> Um, but not in the sense of, of ascending to appreciate the landscape. And so like in the early Roman, Roman period, you have frescoes of landscapes that start to appear as well. That's like an early foreshadowing of what goes on now with Petrarch in the emergence of the perspectival world. Um, the perspectival for Gebser is sort of the late mental, just sort of this, having perspective, having three-dimensional depth, right? And what's great about this is he climbs the mountain, he's at the top of the mountain, and he's looking east, he's looking west, he's looking across France, he's looking to Venice um, or Florence, um, just in the direction of Florence. And he has this kind of spiritual epiphany there on the top of this mountain that the landscape, that, that space is this revelation. It's this beautiful, beautiful spiritual revelation, just seeing the landscape as it is. Um, but in this moment, Petrarch is having guilt about feeling this. And we as moderns have no, no sense of this at all. For, to us, it's a bore, right? Oh, let's go to the Renaissance wing, wing and, and look at the landscape paintings in that nice, you know, like, no, for him, he has this sort of um, um, uh, uh, breakthrough in his soul. He's, he's interiorizing space into his soul, or perhaps his, he's exteriorizing space from his soul, right? There's this kind of, oh my gosh, the land is beautiful, and I want—I want to depict this. I want to write about this. But he also feels guilty, and so he opens up um, Augustine, Saint Augustine, and he reads, you know, um, a passage about a man standing on the mountain, actually, and he has this kind of synchronistic event. I open to a random page, and I'm reading about this mountain, um, and he writes a letter to his his mentor, who's I think a bishop in Florence, and he's saying, you know. I feel so guilty about this. I, I need to kind of come out and say that I like fell in love with the land. You know, I feel guilty because, you know, as St. Augustine says, you should only be contemplating your, your own soul. Only the soul is worthy of contemplation, not matter, not space. So you see in Petrarch, this crystallization of space, right? Um, of perspective. And then with all of these different Renaissance artists in Florence, you can kind of see this move from flat two-dimensionality to three-dimensionality. You see, like, they'll start to add rooms in the back of a painting with angels, right. and there'll be depth to the painting. But Gebser goes through this process of describing all of these particular works of art, and he kind of culminates with a few um, tr uh, treatises, their manifestos on how to draw perspective. And with that, Gebser says, the mental world crystallizes. You know, man is the measure of all things. From If you think about perspective, Remember what he said about pyramidic thinking. It's that cone of perspective, right? Where the eye looks into a, a spatial plane and what he sees 
is real. What he can see, he can measure. And so the eye becomes really important in the, men the late mental. Um, Copernicus was a lens crafter. You know, Galileo is working with lenses. So the eye becomes really important. And what the eye sees is that cone. But with that seeing, this is where the old unperspectival world, the world of the magic and the mythic starts to shut down. And we start to really become remote from that. The, the, the self and the ego starts to coalesce and kind of rigidify. And we lose that sense of interiority in the soul until probably Jung, right? Or, or, or Freud, when that's, they start to kind of erupt again. Um, so there's this kind of a loss. And then Gebser describes this, as you move through the structures, there is a remoteness from origin. So he says, we can never speak of progress, the so-called progress, because progress in this sense is, is a moving away from origin because the earlier structures have a kind of proximity to it, a kind of a spiritual proximity to it because of their sort of dreaming world spaces that they live in. Uh, but when we wake up into the mental, the daylight mind, the waking ego mind, you lose that and you have to kind of regain that in, in the integral. And, that, and that's, that's why I wanted to kind of pause and sort of pivot us into the integral now, right? So, so for right, Gebser- So now we're moving from the mental into <laughs> Yeah, now we're moving. Um, and so for, for the integral now, for the aperspectival, um, here's what begins to happen. We're measuring things. Man is the measure of all things. Science is taking, taking, taking flight. Um, progress in history, that the feeling that history is beginning to move and speed up, right? Like Tehard is so beautiful about this, the way he talks about complexification and consciousness and the speeding up of history. But um, as we're moving into this now, uh, for Gepster, if the perspectival mental age was intended to realize space, the integral age, the aperspectival age is meant to realize time. And what we were saying before, right? Okay, the world of time and the world of the timeless, that, that isn't what Gepster's talking about with time. Uh, so for, for Gepster, as we're saying, time's true nature or its true transmission is time freedom. And that doesn't mean escaping time. It means a transparency of all things that are happening in time and space and all things that are timeless. There's a, there's a unity and a wholeness to that, which means the linearity of the mental, which is important, it's a dimension, but it's only one. So past, present, and future are a whole. And so for Gebster, the integral person begins to realize that the future is as present as the past. And in the way that I think I mentioned this to you when we were talking um, in person that, you know, in the magical and the mythical, perhaps the ancestors are present for people, for, for traditional cultures in a palpable way, you know, in a way that, that the mental doesn't really understand. For the integral, that can come back online. And actually this is some of the dangers with the integral. Like there, there's the the resurgence of the old structures start to kind of come online as we're trying to integrate, but the future also begins to speak to us, right? So the future begins to inform us in presence. And so for Gebser, he starts to look at, and you can see this in artistic movements, right? Impressionism and surrealism and, and Dada and this ex exploration with the irrational, right? Rather than the rational, there's this Cubism. way. Yes. Cubism is another great one. There's a move away and, there, and objects begin to be, luminous or, or, or shine with this kind of spiritual potency um, or the psyche, for instance, is another resurgence. So surrealism is very, very much a kind of a, a, an art of the unconscious, this eruption from the depths, mm -hmm. 
Jung and Freud are talking about. So time in all of its qualities, in the magic and the mythic and the unconscious, starts to come online. But for Gebser, time as a wholeness, that's what we really need to lean into. And so he uses the image of Picasso. Here's another image that we can concretize this with. Um, a lot of Picasso's artwork, again, it's just a motif we're so used to at this point in, in art history, right? But for Gebster, and he knew Picasso, he was friends with him, and they had these long discussions about his art, and he got to see it in person, and I think it really had an impact on him. Um, time is present in Picasso, the, the face that's looking at you and looking away, the face of the person, the visage of the person, again, not a mouthless visage, but a multi-dimensional visage, which presentiates time. Time is radiating from Picasso's painting right. as a whole, a, whole, a time being, as, as Dogen says, that, that I've done some work with about Dogen in this. But um, so time begins to be present. And so for Gebser, it's a move away from time as a linear or mental abstraction, which is important, to presence. And I know this is the part where we, we synced up because very often we think of the present as the now and more like the magical structure, right? Like just now, that, that's all. There's just right. the now. Right, right, But right. for Gebster, no, no. The now is actually the presence. And in if you are truly present here, all of time is present with you. All, of, all that you were and all that you will become oh, yeah. is, is, is latent and present. Yeah, and so that's, that's the seeing through. That's the wow. seeing through of the world. And I think that's what helped him intuitively in 1933. Like he had this kind of presentiation of time. And then he went, okay, like, well, then the structures are going to start bubbling up in that. You're going to start to see there are these, there's these other worlds in us. The magic, the mythic, the, uh, and the mental are all present. And the integral is present. And so for the integral person then, or the early integral person, which is all of us, it becomes a matter of sort of leaning into that presence of the future and, and working with it to, to realize it, you know, in a very conscious way. And, and I think, you know, you can see space kind of possessing humanity, you know, like the Renaissance artists are, are possessed and inspired to, to create perspectival art and, and, and it's a lifetime achievement for many of these guys you can they work on it their whole lives um i think in the interval um it's a similar thing time is possessing us but there's a little bit more of a consciousness of it and so for gebster um the the whole chaos of the 20th century is what you would see if the mental the perspectival world is trying to achieve this realization of time um, it's in motor in motoricity in the progress of history in the kind of revolutionary spirit of the French Revolution in in the in the powers that seem to be coming out of us out of our control the the sweeping of revolutions and wars and and technology and the globalization it, we all have this sense even today that we are not in control of these things and that they are sort of erupting from us you know uh, Paul Klee has this image of one of his angels. And Walter Benjamin talks about this uh, as the angel of history. And, it's, and he's talking about the sort of history as this, this, this upsweep, but in a kind of a too much, you know, it's too windy. It's like hurricane weather, windy. The history is blowing forth and blowing forward. And the angel wants to protect us. And, and it's kind of, it want, Benjamin, Benjamin says, you know, the angel would love to stop time and, and resurrect the dead and return us to Eden, but he can't because history is sweeping everything forward. That sweeping forward is, 
that is time. That is the time realization. That is the time eruption, he describes it. Gebser describes it as an eruption of time. It's a precursor to the integral. It's the kind of, hey, wake up, guys. There's an there's a intensification of consciousness that needs to come online right now. And so in this push-pull of history, mechanization, technologization, um, the rush of progress, and the kind of scary things we're dealing with now in terms of you know climate change and, and what are we going to do? Like things are changing too fast. That, that for Gebser is the kind of unconscious expression of the integral. It's the upsweep of time trying to express itself. And, and the mental can't do it. So it tries to, the only way the mental can do is, is measure. And so time gets faster and faster and faster. And there's smaller milliseconds and smaller milliseconds. And, and so it's kind of like in, a, in contact when they build the, the seat in the spaceship and it wasn't in the blueprint. And, and uh, uh, Jodie Foster's kind of rocking everywhere and is getting really violent and dangerous. But as soon as the seat breaks off and, and it goes to the default uh, blueprint in, at the end of the movie, everything's really calm and sort of present and, and she's able to just kind of float. I, I kind of see it that way. The mental can't, um, the mental can't realize time, only the yeah. integral can. And, and, and the integral realizes time very concretely through presence. And this is sort of a move out of the head and into the whole being. So to sum everything up, we go right from the zero to the third dimension and integral for him is the fourth dimension, which is time, time, freedom, and wholeness and diaphaneity, kind of a seeing through of all of time, past, present, and future. And it's, very, it's a very kind of relaxed, it's, it's an opening, you know, it's a relaxing. It's, it's a, uh, the reason why Gebster, I think, in, intuitively loved Rilke was because Rilke was talking about, you know, the, the, the inner skies of the person, right? Um, so there's a kind of a interiorization of this diaphany of the self as a sort of inward sky and all objects, this sort of origin comes, comes back, you know, the, the presence mm -hmm. of origin returns <clears throat> here, um, which we've kind of, if you see the structures as a kind of moving away in a remoteness mm -hmm. and that kind of, that kind of, we pull it as far back as we can. And then here is where the whole thing begins to be kind of shined through. Um, yeah. well, so so that's that, sort of a nutshell. I, I love that you use the word presence because that actually helps me to sort of find my way because I, I get what it is to bring, I, I think actually having met you a couple days ago, I think I have a bigger view of this now, but to bring presence into my life in a way where the whole karmic stream and all of the, you know, all of even linear history and these world spaces are, as you say, diaphanous. I love that. They're right here. And that to the degree that I can breathe in and can open, uh, I'm just going to be a bigger, better Jeff. Yes. And we all want yes. that. Mm -hmm. And that we become <laughs> as weird as it sounds. <laughs> we become those Picasso paintings, right? Like uh, yeah. the whole spiritual presence of your whole life, you know, all that is visible and invisible, the soul, the magical, the mythical, the mental, you know, you and all of these world, these, these modalities, these world spaces. Um, and then of course it doesn't end at the integral necessarily or, uh, or Bindo was um, uh, on Gepser's mind in his later uh, works and actually in the second edition to Ever Present Origin, he discovered Orbendo and Tehard, and he wrote about them. And he said these guys are talking about the same thing in different ways. And in many ways, he looked looked to Orbendo for like okay. And once the spiritual 
integral person is present, maybe we should look at Aurobindo for like what happens so-called next, you know, mm-hmm. what, what is that latency? What is that future that's speaking? And mm-hmm. perhaps we can lean into Aurobindo for that, but um, just well, to read a quote kind of. Well, okay. I was just going to say, what would you have to say about that? You know, the, the future that's present. Oh, well, I mean, you know, I talked about that as well. And I think, you know, uh, there's enough qualitative descriptors for what the integral a perspectival is the sort of time realization um, that we can look at contemporary art and the humanities and philosophy and you can kind of you can see it starting to happen you can kind of see that like um, a move away from strict secularity um, even if it's sort of halfway accommodations that everything's softening <laughs> everything is becoming um, uh, 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 diaphanous just a little bit and almost uncomfortably so we're, we're even becoming diaphanous to us and, and climate and nature and a sort of interconnectivity a very uncomfortable way for us right now right oh. we're kind of like oh i don't know if i like this i kind of liked being in the bubble of uh, the, the the mental, mental rational mental. is sort of a it, it's it opens up space but the mental rational also it only sees it, what it what is there in its cone of vision and so there's this splicing that's happening right and i think a kind of fragmentation and that's another thing that Gebser talks about with the eruption of time. There's this ratio is only good at dividing, right? So you you, you see in like when the you Protestant say ratio, population. that's rational. Yes, it's yes. good at dividing, and that's always been. It's good at dividing. It's it, and it, and it's good until it reaches the deficient mode, and then that's all it fixates on it, right? So then we have a thousand and one denominations of of protestantism that fragment 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 we have all these revolutions all these we have a thousand domination denominations of tennis shoes for god's sakes yeah there's there's a splitting and a fracturing at the end of the perspectival age um which is sort of our challenge right now is how to to bring about this wholeness because right now even today like on facebook gepster's words you know 70 years ago about nobody's able to talk with anybody everybody has their own little perspectival cone of reality um, that that's shrinking and shrinking, and and that's all that they have. And that they're, seventy they're years ago, yeah. So mm-hmm. I mean, he and I mean, he, he was talking about this, this intuition about what the mental does in his deficient mode. It just keeps splicing reality. And for him, right. the atomic age was sort of the ultimate example of that. Like, hmm. okay, that's the ultimate end of the perspectival world is the end of space itself in in, in the atom bomb. But I, I think we can kind of go further unfortunately and look at the kind of culture wars today as this this further mental uh, mental perspectival fractioning so that's uh, to kind of loop back to your earlier note about whether or not he distinguishes postmodernism he does but he 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 was kind of he passed away right before it was happening in in academia and in culture um but he does talk about this late mental rational of of the perspectival splintering of reality into a thousand Mm -hmm. different fragments and everybody kind of being afraid of everybody else um so so that's the crisis that the the mental world has initiated for itself i think to bring about this mutation this this discontinuous leap um into the integral world and so I don't know what that looks like, but to the degree that I think we can start, it's with this presence, right? It's with this, this seeing through. The, the more we embody that presencing and that, that time freedom, that ego freedom, the less that the, this kind of stuff is going to, to actually be important, you know, defending my turf over another turf and that it's kind beautiful. of like. So it, it's, a actually, it's actually, there's a practice in there. 
Absolutely. There's a tremendous personal uh, spiritual task in in it. That's not very different than I think that a lot of contemplative traditions teach about in terms of ego freedom, very similar. And that's what Mm -hmm. the Gepser conference this this past weekend was, was exploring. It was sort of well, the Gapser talks a lot about presence and diaphany and the spiritual and the integral. And so what does it have to do with Buddhism, right? And I'll get into that in a moment, but I really wanted to share this final quote to kind of summarize everything because I thought it really kind of encapsulated everything we kind of have just gone through to help integrate, integrate, cool. right? So he says, the concretion of time is one of the preconditions of the integral structure. Only the concrete can be integrated, never merely the abstract. By integration, we mean a fully completed and realized wholeness, the bringing about of the integrum, the reestablishment of the inviolate and pristine state of origin by incorporating the wealth of all subsequent achievement. In other words, all the structures, the wealth of all of the structures, the concretion of everything that has unfolded in time and coalesced in a spatial array is the integral attempt to reconstitute the magnitude of man from his constituent aspects so that he, so that he can consciously integrate himself with the whole. So it's this sort of everything we've done in time, it, it becomes spiritually yeah. suffused and, and seen through. Well, that, that's then, it. Yeah. I, I mean, that's, yeah. that's, that feels really new to me and, and actually different than the Buddhist um, approach, which is, you know, sort of have the windshield wiper going so that we're just always in the, the, the present moment without a lot of pres- past or future, you know. Uh-huh. And this to actually encounter the present moment with all of the past and future, you know, there's a different flavor to that. And yeah. it's very, very powerful. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's why he related to Aurobindo too, because he has his own way of talking about it, but Aurobindo describes the same process where these beautiful, beauteous, like spiritual realities, right, of the pristine timelessness and infinite mind, Buddha mind, big mind, that wants to come down, and he says involute, right? It wants to, and now to borrow Gebser's word, it wants to concretize in us. And the only way to do that is to, is to sublimate all of history, everything that's happened in time, you know, and everything that's timeless is to bring those things together. And so Gebs, Gebser points out that for Aurobindo, it was the supramental, is that he's talking about the same thing. Um, so at any, any rate, um, yeah. maybe to bring a, a personal note for Gebser too, in here, in his later life, and this is the topic of the conference this weekend, Gebser in Asia, he decided to sort of tour many countries in Asia, Japan and India and China. And um, while he was in India, in Sarnath, the Buddha's first teaching place, he has this profound uh, Satori experience there. Um, so I think for Gebser, he begins to realize that maybe some of what the contemplative states had to say about the, the states of consciousness corroborated to some degree what he was saying about the integral consciousness with the caveat that time now, you know, history becomes diaphanous as well. Um, but there's this kind of a, he describes it as this, I mean, I, I guess I could, I could read it really quick because it's just a short little passage yeah, from um, a correspondence with, uh, and by the way, for folks, this is a hard to get book, but the structures of consciousness by George Feuerstein is a wonderful work. Um, sort of a, a good, a good book. It's hard to find though. So that's where, that's where my book is coming in. Um, but okay. So 
in Sarnath, he describes this, and this, and this is him talking about this experience a decade after he had it. So it's really kind of crystallized in him. And, and he's, he's saying, it was sober on the one hand happening with crystal clarity in everyday life, which I perceived and to which I reacted normally. And on the other hand, and simultaneously being a transfiguration and irradiation of the indescribable, unearthly, transparent light. No ecstasy, no emotion, but a spiritual clarity, a quiet jubilation, a knowledge of invulnerability, a primal trust. Since Sarnath, I am as if recast inwardly. Since then, everything is in its proper place and it continues to take effect as, and is, in a way, an irradiation that is always present and at hand. And just beautiful, beautiful transmission there. Um, yeah, that's he asked Feuerstein to burn that letter. He said, don't share that with anybody. <laughs> But Feuerstein felt that times have changed. We can share, we can talk about these things. The culture has changed. Um, and he felt it was really important to not lose that biographical dimension of, of Gepser's own kind of, his own concretion of the integral that I think really kind of crystallized in him uh, in his later, later in life. I think it was in the early 60s yeah. this happened. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, that, fabulous. I, I see that the the vid, I hear your audio. I see the video is frozen. I don't know if there's anything okay. you can do, but we're winding down yeah. here anyway. Uh, I'm gonna so. get back on and off. There we go. There you are. Yeah, cool. <laughs> uh, so yeah, that's very beautiful, and uh, and I think leads a nice segue to what you're working on in your book and what's next for you. So I'm working on a very short book. It's going to be about 100 pages or so. It's called Seeing Through the World. Uh, it's nearly finished. It should be available for pre-order, I'm thinking, by the end of the month through Revelor Press. It's a press that uh, I'm associated with and I work with. And um, yeah, I can leave you the link for that. It's, it's revelor.press, Seeing Through the World. And it's essentially what you just got in this in this video. It's, it's looking at the structures. It's giving people a kind of an introduction to Gepser's work and the structures of consciousness and how he approaches them and giving them examples to kind of play with and work with. And then um, there's a, there's a few extra tidbits in there. You know, we think of it as kind of like a, um, like a, a sandwich, right? So you got the meat, you got the full body, you know, whatever is in the center, which is these essays. And then you've got some extra stuff about um, moving integral scholarship forward in terms of let's take a Gibsonian approach to think about these things that we've been talking about. And so if we're not taking, so for me, if we're not using just the mental, how do we really embody this time realization as, as a scholar, as a thinker, how did Gebser do it? How can we continue to do that? What can we learn from then until now? And then also for future writing, and this is sort of a longer project, it's um, really wanting to continue that work to kind of pick that up and look at uh, what's going on right now in culture, in, in media, in arts, in digital music, and sort of continuing that sort of phenomenological approach to the structures and kind of going, what are the play, what's the play of consciousness going on right now? And how I can would we love to have that conversation as well. Yeah, and yeah, for at, sure. Look at current culture. Uh, yes. But wow, that's, that's beautiful. The, the name of the book again is Seeing Through the World. Yes, Reveler. Seeing Through the World, Gene. Uh, seeing through the world, Gene Gepser and Integral Consciousness, and it's through Revelor Press. And you can just go to Revelor Press and go to publications, um, get on our mailing list because we're going to announce it as soon as it's ready to, to go out. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm very much looking forward to being able to, to share that and, and, and help people 
um, experience a different transmission of, of the integral that I think is very complementary to yeah. to integral theory and and anybody who wants to study you know the evolution of consciousness and have a good feel good you know feel feel hope feel that primal trust you know absolutely oh so, I love that no fantastic and a beautiful transmission I I feel enriched by it Jeremy I I I I, I do. And I appreciate well, it. Wonderful. appreciate you and, and appreciate the work you're doing. And if people want to find out more about you, they go to, you have a P- Patreon page or? Yes, I, I do. Um, I'll leave a link to that. I think it's just patreon.com slash Jeremy Johnson, maybe Jeremy D. Johnson, one of those. You'll have the link. Right up. Yeah, yeah, we do. I, I do a little book club right now. We've been reading over the summer, Tehard Deschardins, The Phenomenon of Man. Um, it's been really fun. We're, we're probably going to read some Gepser. We're probably going to read Integral literature and scholarship, um, maybe a few science fiction books, and just sort of think about the play of consciousness as we go forward. Um, but you, folks are welcome to, to join me for that. I, I do Zoom sessions every Sunday with a good group of people, and we have a lot of fun. So they're welcome Fantastic. to join there too. Yeah. Yay. All right. Well, <laughs> All right. thank you so much, Jeremy. A really great meeting you, uh, having you here, and, uh, and seeing you again on the, on the inter- internet machine. So yes, yes. keep up the great work. Thanks for having me on. Yes. And thank you everybody for listening. And uh, we'll check back with Jeremy uh, soon and look at the culture. Great. Thanks everybody. Thanks folks. Bye.